Is your home lake getting really crowded? Is the river you fish seeing tons of pressure these days? We're going to talk about how to deal with pressured fish and fishing in a crowd on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. I'm Chad Lachance, and you're listening to Fishful Thinker, the podcast. All things fishful, all the time. Hey, y'all, it's Chance here. Um, topic that is something I hear a lot about, and it seems like ever since the Rona came down and uh, we got some increased pressure on the lake, certainly in my home area, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I'm not catching fish. There's too many people, too many boats, whatever, too many people on the river. And, uh, and at the end of the day, we still want to catch fish. So I thought I'd do this podcast to talk about all the ways that we as fishing guides because uh, I do run a guide service, uh, deal with crowds day in and day out on our home lake. And I happen to live in northern Colorado, which has somewhat limited uh, water supply compared to some of you. Uh, you know, depending on where you live, you may have a lot more water to fish in general than we have here uh, in the west. Of course, everything we fish is reservoirs. Um, less than two hours from Denver, which is a major population center. And my home lake is only a few minutes from Fort Collins, Colorado, which is also a major population center. So our waters get a lot of pressure. All the rivers up and down the front range of Colorado get a ton of pressure as well. And I would have to get a real job if I couldn't catch fish fishing in a crowd. So we thought we'd talk about some of that today on this episode of Fishful Thinker, the podcast. Um, I think the first thing that has to be mentioned uh, when you talk about fishing in a crowd is the crowd bothers you more than it bothers the fish. And that doesn't sound like a big statement, but it's a huge statement because in some of the most pressured fisheries I've ever been to, the best days are when the most boats are on the water. Um, the hard days are when nobody shows up and it's because the activity, the fish are used to it. So really what the difference is it, on any given day is what, what level of, of uh, busyness, let's say on the lake or on the river are your fish used to. So it used to be that I would only fish weekdays. I would never fish weekends because that was the only time that uh, the lakes were crowded here in northern Colorado was weekends. And I was doing seminars up and down the, the front range of Colorado and, and all around the West Salt Lake City and some other places. And what I figured out was the information I was giving to people was a little bit wrong because fishing in the crowd is different. Fishing pressured fish is different than fishing the unpressured fish. And when I was only fishing weekdays, which I did for about a five-year period uh, back in the early 2000s, what happened was I got I got out of touch with how to fish fish that were in a crowd. So now these days I'm the other way around. Now I tend to fish mostly under the normal busy times for the lake because that's what I'm going to encounter in most places. It's easier to adapt to unpressured fish than it is to pressured fish. So that's a was a key thing for me to wrap my head around early on in my career that, hey, look, everybody, all you guys listening, the vast majority of you are going to fish on weekends, and therefore I need to be in tune with fish on weekends or I can't give you any useful information. So keep in mind that that's where it's coming from. Also, I'm major population center for fly fishing up and down uh, my home area, the, the Cache Laputa River, the Platte River, the North Platte River, the Big Thompson River, the Arkansas River, 
all of those um, receive a tremendous amount of fishing pressure from fly tackle and conventional tackle, and those are the areas I fish on a regular basis as well. So my my background information for handling this podcast is based on a variety of fishing scenarios, everything from ponds that people walk around all the time to in, in literally city park ponds here around my home region, all the way up to uh, you know the big reservoirs that I'm getting fishing pressure from lots of well-educated, well-equipped tournament anglers. It, so let's talk about some key things and how I address that first of all. Like I said, first of all, get your head out of the fact that it bugs the fish as much. The boat traffic or the foot traffic bugs the fish. It doesn't bug the fish nearly as much. They, keep in mind, are born and raised with it. It's a day-in, day-out occurrence to them, and so it changes them a little bit, but it doesn't necessarily put them off. To say that fish aren't biting because the lake has a bunch of pressure on it uh, would not be correct. It just means that they're not biting as easily uh, as they might otherwise be, be able to bite if they were all relaxed. Now, having said that, sometimes that boat traffic actually creates the feeding um, opportunities for the fish. And a classic example of that is mudlines. One of my favorite things on my home lake here at Horse Tooth Reservoir is to fish mudlines. And what do I mean by mudlines? Well, that means where the bank is somewhat soft, a little bit muddy, it's flat in the morning and the water's all clear. Well, then no wind, no nothing, it's all flat and clear and the lake's flat and the lakes, the fish aren't biting well. But then what happens about 10 o'clock on those nice sunny calm days is all the ski boats show up. When those ski boats show up and they start running up and down the lake, they're gonna create waves and those waves uh, are going to slosh on those muddy banks and those muddy banks are gonna create mud lines. And when mud lines first form, they're only on the surface. It's particulates that are in the water that are on the surface. And as time goes on, over the course of a couple hours, they will sink and take up the whole water column, at which point the opportunity is lost. But when those mud lines first start to form, it's very common for walleyes or bass or our reservoir trout to feed heavily in those mud lines. And so the first, you know, say 10 o'clock in the morning, the ski boats start showing up. A pattern for me is to work starting closest to the boat ramp because that's where the most traffic will be in the beginning and then working my way up the lake as the traffic disperses around the lake and creates mud lines in more places. That's a very good scenario where the boating traffic actually helps my bite. Another scenario like that could be the boat ramps. Boat ramps hold fish all the time. I'm an advocate of that. If you watch Fishful Thinker television on either of our networks or, or our YouTube channel or you listen to this podcast, you know I'm an advocate of fishing boat ramps. Boat ramps need activity to be at their best. So one of the biggest smallmouth bass I ever caught in my home lake, I caught literally casting between two boat trailers that were on a four-lane-wide four boat ramp. There were two boat trailers on it. I cast in between those two trailers as people were getting ready to take their boats out and got the biggest small I've ever caught now, or ever caught in this lake. And keep that in mind that, that the trailers are literally, the cars are running, the trailers are on the ramp. Clearly the fish don't care about that. And I think what's going on is every time somebody power loads a boat in that scenario, they stir the bottom up big time, that gets the minnows going and the crayfish going, and then the big smallmouth come in there to get it. They're used to being boats on that ramp on a regular basis. So for them, it's not nothing bad ever happens to a smallmouth at a boat ramp. It's just a lot of noise and a noisy environment and all that, but nothing bad happens. So don't worry about the activity there. Same thing with, uh, and this is a big one, 
these days, the paddle boards, or what I call the pedestrian traffic, traffic, the paddle boards, the kayakers, and waders, and everybody that are all up and down the banks. And I am a, just for the record, I want, don't want to make any enemies here, I am a daily kayaker slash paddle boarder as well as angler. So uh, I'm not bashing on anybody, but I will tell you this, I see a lot of anglers in boats or that are walking the bank that won't fish around the paddle boards or the kayaks or the people that are in swimming areas. I'm here to tell you that one of my favorite tricks when it's calm in the evening time and there's nothing going on in the lake and the paddleboarders and those guys aren't here, I'll let my dog swim three or four times, throw his throw his tennis ball in the lake and let him run around, swim and stir the bank up and then fish right where the dog was. Because again, it's similar to the trailers on the boat ramp I talked about a minute ago. It stirs the bottom up, gets the food chain going and all of a sudden I have a good place to fish. And intuitively you'd say, well, the dog will scare the fish away. No, he really won't. The dog will draw the fish in. Same thing with people on swim beaches. I've seen wipers cruising through herds of people on the swim beach and literally going right through the people because as those people are walking around on the swim beach, they're stirring up the bottom, the same kind of thing. There's kind of a running joke in fly fishing about a thing called the San Juan Shuffle where people go out in the river and stir their feet up and what that does is stir the bottom and get the nymphs kicked loose from the bottom and trout will feed right at your feet. In Colorado, they call them bootlickers. I'm sure they call them in other places around the country, but they will literally swim right up to your feet and feed because your feet are kicking the nymphs loose. The same thing happens in the reservoir with people wading around in the bank. So when I get a bunch of kids out here and they're all splashing around and they're having a good time, I will go fish around those kids. It's certainly not going to bother the fish. It will only bother you. Same thing again with the dogs, people swimming dogs. I was on the lake yesterday. There was people swimming dogs to the point of stirring the mud all up in this one cove that was otherwise clear. I caught several fish in and amongst those dogs. So you, again, it's in your head, not the fish's head. It's frustrating to fish around them, yes. Intuitively, you're like, oh man, I don't like that. Uh, that's, that's uh, you know, that's again on you, not the fish. The fish will be there, it won't bother them. A couple key things, let's talk about, let's back up here a little bit and talk about fishing amongst fish that are being heavily fished for, not just pedestrian traffic or boat ramp traffic or something like that. Fish that are getting a lot of fishing pressure. How do I address that situation? We'll start with the reservoirs because I do more of that. I guide on reservoirs. I don't guide in rivers. One of the first things I'll do is um, downsize my line. I'll start fishing with lighter line because Joe Average is generally fishing with heavier lines and, and the details will matter more if you're fishing behind other anglers, especially if you're fishing behind skilled anglers. Lighter line will get you more bites. So we've done whole podcasts about that. In general, lighter line will get you more bites for any given lure. Well, it's even more important when you're dealing with heavily pressured fish, and especially if the water's clear. So if I'm getting a lot, let's say the midsummer bites on, I've got a lot of fish that are stationed on offshore humps, okay? Every angler that goes through there is going to fish those humps. We've all got good enough graphs these days in our boats that we're going to see those fish that are stationed over humps, whether they be bass or walleyes. You're going to see them. Everyone knows they're there. The question is, can you get them to bite? One of the ways to get them to bite, fishing behind other people, when they're all fishing, say, 8, 10, 12-pound lines, something like that, is you come in behind there with 4- or 6-pound test. And that's something that has worked for me in a lot of places. Typically, if you're going to downsize your line, that also means downsizing your lures. Uh, and there's the, a similar scenario. I will go to smaller lures in a lot of cases. 
I will go to more natural colored lures in a lot of places, but not always. And here's, here's the other end of that spectrum. Sometimes a very bright colored lure, if everyone's throwing a more standardized deal, a very bright colored lure can be your friend. So to differentiate yourself from everybody else, everybody's going along and they've all got that green pumpkin tube jig or they've got that black and blue skirted jig or they're all throwing the same you know, uh, streamer fly that's a natural colored woolly bugger or whatever the case might be. There's so much consistency among what people like to throw. I will swing it as go as far as possible. So now I'm going to throw a screaming hot chartreuse you know, goat minnow, let's say, or my jig and spoon, instead of being chrome, will go to a, a pure white or a white with orange or something, something that's a very hot color, again, just to differentiate myself from stuff they're seeing day in and day out, get them to very unique stuff. Uh, very small baits that hold extremely still are excellent ways to get fish that have been that have been sniped a bunch uh, that could be a really good way to do it so everyone's let's say you were drop shotting smallmouth bass and and you're in a tournament everyone's fishing all these rock piles and 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 you know that everyone's got a ned rig or a drop shot or whatever well that's fine put something like bite an inch and a half off of your bait and make that thing an inch and a half or two inches long put it on the bottom and don't move it if you know you're around fish put it on the bottom and don't move it Everybody wants to move their stuff. And in my experience, uh, most anglers overwork baits as a guide. When I'm guiding people, they want to overwork baits. Put that thing on the bottom and don't move it. Drop your drop shot to the bottom. Take up just enough tension on the line that you can feel that the sinker's there. And do not move the bait. And just let it sit there. Let the fish come to you. You'll be surprised at how many smallmouth will swim over there and grab that by taking, say, a three-inch goat minnow, biting it down to an inch and a half, put it on a drop shot, put it on the bottom, and don't move it at all. A lot of very pressured smallmouth will come and bite that. Um, same thing if you're talking about uh, something like, with, let's say, a crankbait bite. Everybody's on a, a standard, you know, two-and-a-half-inch long crankbait. They're running the similar depths, you know, whatever. We've all been in those either tournaments or that situation where, everybody's cranking, everybody knows it, you know, early spring, everyone's throwing a, a wiggle wart, let's just say, if you're in the Ozarks, a very classic known spring pattern, that's fine. Take a crankbait that runs that same depth range, but is half the size, and what you might find out is you can get a bunch of bites that way. Conversely, you can go the other way around and upsize your bait if the water conditions will allow you to do that as well, and that's not something I do a lot of because it is very much a swing for the bleachers move, but on the other hand, it can get you a bite or two when you need it. There was a few years ago where I was in a, uh, I was coaching actually a high school state championship tournament. We had a bunch of fish. We had our limit. We were doing fine. I knew we were probably in the hunt, but we were running out of fish that we could get to bite by all the downsized stuff and everything else we were doing. Everybody was rotating. Everybody in the derby was rotating through the same series of humps. Everybody knew the fish was on them. Late in the day when the, even the downsized stuff wouldn't work anymore, I went the full spectrum the other way and put a great big bait down there and just drug it on the bottom. I had to get just drag it on the bottom. What happened was we picked up two fish late in the day, both of which were very solid upgrades for us. And it was after those same small humps, I'm talking like quarter acre sized pieces of, of terrain had been pounded by some of the state's best fishermen 
for six hours straight, we were able to pick a couple of fish up late in the day by moving up to a great big bait, an oversized crayfish bait on the bottom. Basically, the fish hadn't seen anything like that all day long because everybody's throwing average baits and it gave them a reason to bite. So that can be a good way to, to fish behind crowds of people. Another thing I like to do in fishing behind people sometimes is fish extremely fast. So one thing I notice, a lot of people will wind baits at the same speed. So everyone throws a bait out and winds it in. They're, they're all, the reels are similar in speed and everyone's fish, fishing the same basic speed. Sometimes fishing extremely fast, again, it's the polar opposite of not moving your bait at all, which I talked about a minute ago. Fishing extremely fast can be an excellent way to get fish to bite because they don't get a chance to look at your lure. So you might need a very heavy lure to get that done. Let's say right now on my home lake, a lot of people are catching fish by swimming a little uh, like three and a half inch uh, soft swim bait on a jig head. It's all the rage around the country. Guys are doing it all over the place. Well, most of the guys here are doing it on an eighth to a quarter ounce jig head, but maybe you put that same size swim bait on a half ounce jig head so it stays down in the water column, work it tip down with a rod trip and retrieve it twice as fast as everybody else. Basically what you're doing then is giving the fish no chance to really look at it. We know they like that basic profile because other guys are catching fish with it, but after they've seen it a bajillion times come by, maybe they're not gonna fall for that one anymore, and that's when you can go twice as fast and get them to bite. Another scenario that I like, um, let's say everybody's catching fish on crankbaits. Well, that's fine, but I will come right behind them with a jerkbait. And the reason being, that runs in the same depth lines, the reason being the jerkbait is far more erratic. And erratic is a great way to get fish that don't want to bite to bite. They will pounce out of pure instinct. They're not biting because they... Uh, they're hungry necessarily. It's a pure instinctual bite It's a that you're trying to get, or people like to call them reaction strikes, although Larry Dahlberg says that any fish is doing anything to your lure is a reaction. Well, I get it, but basically you're trying to get a fish to be instinctual, and kind of like the same thing if I pitch a ball to you and you're not looking, you catch it out of the corner of your eye, your instinct is to grab it. Well, when that lure comes through, they're all erratic, fish instinct is to pounce on it. If it comes through, they're all rhythmic. Maybe they follow it. Maybe they ignore it altogether. Conversely, if everybody on the lake's throwing crankbaits and you're on a hot crankbait bite and everybody's pounding fish on crankbaits and you got a fish behind people, come through there with the jerkbait and you can get them to go or the other way around. If everybody's throwing jerkbaits, come through there with a crankbait. Again, you're just mixing up what you see as far as pressure goes. Um, Long story short, trying to be slightly different than everybody else. If I know that there's a hot color, everyone likes to throw red, you know, bass guys like, uh, like to throw red in the spring. And they think, oh, red's a great color in the spring. Okay, I get it. Maybe I throw a more purple color in the spring or an orange color in the spring. So something in the same spectrum, but slightly different than what everybody else does. I've been the MC of a tournament here in Colorado called the Fullman Open for a long time, like 12 years, 13 years. It's 50 of the best teams in the state, 100 guys fishing 12 hours overnight. I've interviewed all the guys every year, and invariably, everybody's catching them on a tube jig. I'm catching them on a green tube jig, green pumpkin tube jig, green pumpkin tube jig. 
that's fine. But if you're fishing behind those guys, maybe a black and blue tube jig or maybe an orange tube jig or a white tube jig, something like that, because the tube has the right action that people want, but they're seeing a ton of them. So maybe you just mix the color up a little bit. Again, maybe make your tube jig smaller or bigger. If the, the, the predominant thing is a two and a half to three inch tube jig, great. Throw a four inch tube jig or an inch and a half tube jig. Just make it where it's not the average as it goes. A lake that I used to guide on, I don't guide anymore. The square bill bite was a big deal. Everybody was catching fish on square bills and they're all throwing that 1.5 or 2.5 size square bill crankbait and catching a lot of smallmouth and largemouth bass. Fantastic, but I would come behind them with a three, a 3.5, a much bigger square bill, and you can vacuum up some fish that way. Uh, another excellent way to do it, or conversely, a 0.5, which is hard to find these days, the little tiny crankbaits that you have to throw on a spinning rod, but it's a fantastic way to get bites from very heavily pressured fish. And just for the record, that little 0.5 size square bill is a fantastic thing to throw in the in a river or a stream behind other people as well. Everyone, all the conventional tackle guys that you see, if you go up and down Poudre Canyon, if he's got conventional tackle, nine out of 10 of them are running either an inline spinner or a spoon. But you come through there with a little tiny flicker shad, the smallest of the flicker shads, or a little flicker minnow, or a little tiny jerkbait, or a little tiny size 0.5 crankbait, you can catch fish right behind a guy throwing inline spinners without any problem at all. And it's your your profiles are more realistic, um, and you can be more in control of your of the action of the bait. So uh, that can be a great call, you know, going that route too. Another really good way to fish behind people, and this one's something I've preached on on Fishful Thinker Television for years. It's something we do a ton of. Uh, spinner baits. Spinner baits are all the rage, and and you know uh, people fish them all the time. They've been they've been a staple forever. Every bass that's ever swam has seen a spinner bait at some point. So instead of throwing a traditional spinner bait with two blades and a skirt and a fixed a fixed arm, I will throw a big beetle spin with a single big willow blade or a single big Colorado blade and a jig head and a rubber body on it of some kind. Typically, it's either going to be a Berkeley Power Swimmer or a, or a Power Bait the Deal or something along those lines. Um, again, a great choice because I have a much more realistic profile. I only have a single blade, and therefore it gives off a completely different vibration pattern than any dual-bladed or triple-bladed spinnerbait that you're going to see and again, the profile is so much more real. And I can also put a big jig head and a little body and therefore work it really fast. Or I could put a big body and a small jig head and work it really slow, much slower than everybody else is working a traditional 3 8 ounce, you know, double willow spinnerbait that you see 99% of people tie on. Um, same thing with the chatterbait. You get guys throwing a chatterbait or a bladed jig, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of guys will be throwing that. It'll be a good early spring bait. You'll see a lot of guys throwing that. Throw something with a different vibration pattern. So instead of, of uh, throwing the same chatterbait that everybody else is throwing, maybe go back with a traditional spinnerbait. I did that not too long ago with a, with a uh, MLF pro, former BASS pro, Josh Bertrand, where we were fishing his home lake. We were filming for Fishful Thinker. He was fishing much more new school. He was fishing a, a bladed jig, and he was catching fish with it. But if I'm going to fish behind a top pro, I'm not going to throw the same thing he's throwing, even though he's catching fish with it. So I went to a 
uh, traditional spinnerbait, and he was kind of laughing about me throwing an old school spinnerbait. But guess what? I caught fish. In fact, I caught bigger fish than he did throwing right behind him with him throwing that the bladed jig or the chatterbait and me throwing the spinnerbait. Both have different vibration profiles. Uh, both have different actual visual profiles, although not tremendously different. Um, you can, again, mix the speed, either one of those up, whatever you need to do. But by observing what he's doing and fishing something that's complementary but different, it works pretty good. If you happen to be a co-angler, let's say that you're a new to tournament fishing and you're going to be a non-boater or co-angler, you're a back-of-the-boat guy, I highly recommend that you watch closely whatever your boater's doing and then do something complementary but different. If he's throwing a crankbait, you throw a jerkbait. If he's throwing a spinnerbait, you throw a chatterbait. If, if, if he's throwing a, you know, a, a whatever, just something complimentary. If he's throwing a jig and pig, you throw a Texas rig with a more realistic profile. Or conversely, if he's throwing the, the Texas rig, you throw the jig and pig. But long story short, slightly different, but it needs to be in the same speed range because otherwise his boat will be moving too fast or too slow for your presentation. You know, if he's dragging a worm, you drag a lizard, um, you know, things like that. I did that to Kelly Jordan, BSS Pro, MLF Pro Kelly Jordan on Lake Okeechobee many, many years ago. He was dragging a big worm around and, or not even a big worm, he was dragging like a seven inch worm around and I got a 10 inch power lizard out and had like a seven or eight pound lead on him at lunchtime out of his own boat. Now I'm gonna give him credit, and Kelly Jordan, I love you bud, in case he happens to hear this. He uh, made a great adjustment when the wind came up in the afternoon and kicked my butt but when we were doing the, the similar things earlier in the day I caught fish right behind him by just taking a lizard that was considerably bigger than what he was throwing and dragging it around just give fish something different I could have downsized as well but we were on Lake Okeechobee and you're looking for bigs and they like big bites there. So rather than go to a four inch finesse worm to, to counter his seven inch worm, I went to a 10 inch lizard instead, which has appendages. Again, doing something slightly different. Um, if you're a fly guy, this is a, this is a classic one. I run into this all the time in Colorado. Drifting midges, drifting midges, drifting midges. That's drifting small nymphs, Euro nymphing, whatever it might be, nymph under a bobber, we're bobber fishing. Everybody and their uncle does it. You can see guys line up down the river. Everybody's got a bobber on. Everybody's drifting nymphs along. And I get it. You catch a ton of fish doing that. But you also get a ton of refusals. In that scenario, throw in something like a small soft tackle fly that has a little bit of motion to it. Or take the bobber off altogether and you be old school nympher. What you'll find out is... Fish will bite other stuff that, sure, they are, they're tuned into that little midge, but they'll bite other stuff on any given day. And the key is just being slightly different than everybody else. If everybody's throwing small little midge flies in a size 22, well, maybe you throw a size 12 but put some motion to it so that it's got a little bit of action. And I know that goes against the, the dead drift thing, but it's really important. Same thing with skittering a dry fly just a little bit on the surface. Uh, as fish come up, you see, as soon as you get fish refused, and we've done this in some heavily pressured waters, as soon as I see a trout refuse my dry fly, I'm going to throw it right back to him, but this time, next time he gets near it, I'm going to skitter it slightly away from him. 
keep in mind that most of what they're eating, unless they're eating a, something like a spinnerfall, most of what they're eating is alive. And so a little bit of motion on the surface, creating a little bit of just a tiny little bit of, of motion or it can just give you a little bit of life and get fish to go ahead and bite, whereas everybody else is dead drifting something. Of course, there's the old classic crash the hatch with the streamer. Uh, that does work. It works very well. In my experience, you need to make that streamer go as fast as possible. Uh, the faster you can make that streamer go, uh, or the more you can make it change directions, uh, the better off you're going to be uh, in terms of getting fish to bite in terms of not matching the hatch. So, hey, I got a whole bunch of fish. They're feeding on these little little caddis flies that are coming off, but everybody and their uncle's fishing caddis flies up and down the river, up and down the runs up ahead of me and below me. Well, fine. Then I'm going to take a small, heavy streamer, make it go real fast and see what happens with that. That has worked exceptionally well. Um, historically, I've had to talk guides into letting me do it when we've filming with guides before. Um, you know, we, we filmed with a guy, Bob Streb, a uh, great guy, one of my favorite guys ever that we filmed with. We drifted nymphs, so I was blue in the face, couldn't handle anymore. Finally, my camera guy, Farnsworth, Tim Farnsworth, love you, man. He, uh, he's like, man, get your streamer out and get some of these fish caught. And I literally did. I put a clouser, or a, yeah, a clouser minnow on, a real heavy little synthetic clouser minnow, not tied with bucktail, and stripped it as fast as I could strip it. And guess what? All those fish that were refusing my midges, uh, of which we had changed to you know, 100 different flies over the course of three hours, would pounce all over that streamer fly, even though we could see them feeding to midges and refusing our flies. Those fish are educated. They get too much of a chance to look at the, of the dead drift, and they would bite that real speedy little streamer. So the key is it needs to be speedy. If you just take your classic, you know, woolly bugger out and try to barely drift it along and barely strip it, they're going to get, again, too much chance to look at it. The speed can be your friend. The speed or lack thereof can be your friend. So a couple generalities to look at. If if your fish are getting a ton of pressure, either fish much smaller or much larger than average baits, okay? If otherwise, the other possibility is fish much faster or not moving baits at all. Again, to be different than everybody else around you. If people are winding baits, you throw erratic baits. If people are dead drifting something, you throw high speed baits, as the case might be. If if it's a topwater bite and everybody and their uncles working, you know, topwaters around the lake, well, maybe you work something just barely under the surface, like a wake bait. Uh, again, to give fish a little bit different, but in the same ballpark. There's a reason that everybody on the lake or the river are doing similar things because it's proven to win, it's proven to work, but you want to work better than everybody else. And, and therefore, you need to be slightly different in most cases to do that. And it really going to come down to confidence. And the last thing I'll throw out there, because this is a big thing that I think that is lost in, in the translation a lot of times. Make better presentations. In other words, be a more accurate caster. Be Hit the shady spots that people can't hit. Uh, be very good about depth control or retrieve discipline. Or if it's a, a bottom contact jig bite, be very, very diligent about keeping your jig on the bottom. In other words, be a disciplined angler and really really concentrate on the quality of your presentation will make a big giant difference. You know, we just got back from Kansas and I was fishing, we get behind some guys there and I was watching them and their casts were all generally around the outside of the weed lines. They weren't right on 
the bushes. And then when I really watched, I'm like, well, geez, they're not even throwing on a lot of the horizontal stuff that's within the bushes. And I don't know if it's because they couldn't make the presentations or what, but when I started coming through, they're making extremely accurate, extremely methodical presentations. I caught fish right behind tournament anglers working down the bank. So um, you can't let it get in your head. You might have to fish a little bit more disciplined than everybody else. I I can't think of any scenario where being a less accurate caster is an advantage in any way, shape, or form. So I always preach casting accuracy and line control no matter what we're talking about. And if you're going to fish in pressured fish, uh, you definitely need to focus on that. It's a number one skill set, and I think that's really important. So like I said, in summary, fish the fastest bait or the slowest bait, fish the largest bait or the smallest bait. Uh, fish the brightest color or the most natural color and I'll close with one last trick and this is hard to find lures that will do it but if you can find clear bodied lures use them you would be surprised at how much clear bodied lures will get you bites uh, clear crankbaits jerkbaits or mostly clear crankbaits and jerkbaits translucence can be your friend so hopefully this information has helped you out join the conversation at Fishful Tanker on Facebook or Instagram. We'd love you to check out our YouTube channel as well. There's more than 500 videos there. We add stuff all the time. It's all education-based, and there's a bunch of cooking on there as well for you outdoor cooking enthusiasts. So, Otherwise, we hope you'll join in on World Fishing Network or Altitude Sports and see what we have going on Fishful Tanker Television. But until next time, this has been Fishful Tanker, the podcast. <laughs>